Hello there, my friends. Welcome to Careers Without Four Years. I'm Melanie Dunn. I'm a workforce development professional, and this podcast is for anyone who wants to find out where the opportunity is in today's job market for great careers that don't require four-year degrees. The economy has changed. Today, most jobs don't require bachelor's degrees. We'll hear from professionals in technology, healthcare, the trades, and other industries who love what they do and make a good living at it. In addition, we'll learn how to shop for affordable training, how to pay for it with grants and loans without excessive costs or debt, or even find free training. And if you are a woman or person of color, please listen in for inspiring stories by people who are thriving in careers you may not have seen yourself in. It surprises many people to learn that most technology careers do not require four-year degrees. And this includes high-paying, high-demand careers, such as software developers, cloud administrators, web and UX designers, DevOps, and many other IT jobs. Overall, tech jobs are growing more rapidly than most of the job market. There's something called a tech skills gap. Employment of software developers is projected to grow 22% from 2019 to 2029, much faster than the average for all occupations. Software developers on average earn $110,000 a year, depending on experience and geographic location. In the recent past, one barrier to entry into a tech career was that many employers required a bachelor's in computer science. As college is too expensive for most people, especially people of color, and as the U.S. has trouble attracting people into tech careers to begin with, the nation does not graduate enough people with CS degrees. More companies are accepting the fact that there are not enough of these grads to go around. However, community colleges as a whole are not addressing this gap. So here's where the opportunity is. Boot camps, rather than community college, have become a great way to get into these careers. Some of these short-term programs are also offered tuition-free by nonprofits such as Perscalis, Apprenti, and others. Some companies like Amazon are sponsoring training programs themselves. And we're going to devote an entire episode about this soon. In today's episode, you'll learn what a software developer does, how a person of color built a successful career in tech, and how to tell if software development might be right for you. Today's guest is Tony Amos, founder of Anthony Software Group, a software engineering consultancy specializing in agile strategies. When I last looked, Tony had a whopping nine certifications, including those for Scrum, Kanban, and Agile. His clients include J.P. Morgan, Golden Tree, Prudential, and Volvo. I have known Tony for many years, and I consider him both a personal friend and a mentor. In fact, it's Tony that suggested this podcast. Tony and I have had many discussions about the lack of diversity in tech and what to do about it. Here's the interview. So, Tony, you got into computer science before it was technically a field in the Navy. Can you tell us how that happened? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for asking, Melanie. 
I uh, kind of, I literally stumbled upon computers. Um, well, I've, first of all, I'll say I've been in the field for, oh, just, I think next year will be my 40th year in this field. So I got started in uh, like 19, actually no, this year is because it was 1981 when I got started, uh, where, uh, you know, at that time, computers were not found very often outside of big organizations like big companies and, and or major universities. So I was I hadn't even seen a computer uh, prior to the time I enlisted in the Navy. But my job was in uh, administration. And um, there, there was a word processor there that uh, called it was a, it was a Wang word processor, and that mm-hmm. word processor had uh, programming language in it that I just came across one day. Uh, it happened to be while we were out at sea for a while, where there's a lot of quiet time, and I opened one of the books and I saw that this programming language called GW Basic and just started fiddling around with it and found that I liked it. You know, prior to that day, I'd never seen it before, never heard of, of, of uh, computer programming before, but it was something that I fell into immediately. So I, uh, I read that the only resource I had was that one manual that came with the computer. I read every word of it. I played around with it um, and actually wrote some programs that made my job easier. And uh d- uh, so there were some things that I was getting done much faster than anybody had gotten done before. And, and people were trying to figure out how I was doing that. When I showed the uh, people that I reported to what I was doing, it was, uh, you know, they, they found it really useful and really interesting. And uh, it actually led me into getting, uh, getting me referred into a program that the Navy had going on at the time, trying to automate some of the, uh, some of the logistical activities. So that's how my career got started. So behind Top Gun, there's Tony Amos. Well, <laughs> that, that <laughs> Top Gun will never get off the ground if the parts that I get for them don't arrive. <laughs> Thank you for your service. <laughs> um, I found a lot of people simply don't know what a software engineer does and therefore would not consider this career. What is one thing you wish people understood about what you do? I think the the most straightforward way to to uh, to show people is uh, to let them uh, refer to something they know. Uh, everybody uses a phone now. Um, everything, every app, everything you touch on that phone is software. Uh, you have a laptop, you have, or a desktop computer that you use at home or at school <clears throat> or at work. Um, everything that you run on there is software. And every one of those, uh, so every bit of that software had an architect behind it that designed it and led the development team, or basically showed the development team how to build it. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, so that's what I that that's the simplest way that I would put what I do. I design the software, 
And uh, I have a, a team of people who will actually build it. So to get to the architect level, it's, it's similar to a building architect where the, the building architect draws the blueprints and the, the requirements and standards. And it says, oh, and then someone wants to build that building. All of the, they provide all of the instructions to the people who are doing the work. And you write that in object-oriented languages called code. Right, right. That's all. The okay. requirements are typically written written out as documents of some sort or just some way of, it's an effective way. It's just finding the most effective way to communicate what you want. And then the programmers write the code that make it run. Hmm. So could you describe a typical project you might work on and just how that might go for you with whom you'd be working and sort of maybe a sample language that you would know. I know a lot of people out there are self-taught or are fiddling with these projects themselves, uh, as you said. So could you delve into that a little bit for us? Sure, sure. Uh, anyone who gets into software, uh, you, you've heard of Coders, programmers, developers, there are all, all kinds of, all of those different terms apply to people who write the code. Um, the, the person, you know, that's how I started in, um, in software, uh, learning how to code and learning how to code in a lot of different languages because languages come and go. But um, I had to learn the languages and how the software interacted with the computer system and compute and interacted with other computers and the network. And there's all of this stuff going on behind the scenes. But uh, to to answer your question of who I who I work with, I would uh, you've mentioned a couple of the clients that I've worked with and what they want uh, my in my history, I've primarily built uh, large-scale corporate systems. So there are some people who specialize in gaming, for example. That's not my expertise or my skill set, not something that I would would attempt to do at this point anyway. There are others who specialize in writing apps, designing apps for phones or tablets, and that's also not in my specialty. My specialty is in the large systems that corporations use to, to uh, operate more efficiently. So when you, uh, I might be involved in a system, for example, if you have a bank account and you get a text message from the fraud department saying that there's a transaction that may, uh, may not be something you did. Did you authorize this transaction? I might be the person behind the scenes who designed how, who designed how that happens. So I will work with, uh, say, the head of the fraud department who says, we want our customers to know when there are potentially fraudulent transactions. So I'll start asking a series of questions. You know, what does a fraudulent transaction look like? They may say something that, you know, a transaction that's not where they normally shop, not where they normally live or travel to, not something they would typically buy, you know, and it, it can get considerably more complex than that. But let's say that those are the rules. So I'll design how we figure that out based on what information is available, and then how do we communicate that to the customer and let the customer reply back in a convenient way so that they might be able to just text, text back, yes, 
and it's fine. Or they text back no, and then I'll design, okay, here's what the system will do when they reply a no. You know, maybe we'll automatically put a freeze on the card until the customer calls or something like that. So that's a, that's a high-level illustration of something I would, I would be involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these systems have to talk to one another as well, right? Right. Yeah. Right. They sounds. need to. Yeah. The, the more the systems talk to each other, like they say, you know, the right hand needs to know what the left hand is doing. Mm-hmm. The more they're able to talk to each other, uh, the more information is available, which means that the software itself can make smarter decisions. Well, one of the things that comes up whenever we talk is um, problem solving. Right. And you have a personal mission that you were sort of looking through, thinking about what you were doing, thinking about your role, thinking about what you have to offer in your consultancy. And you were talking about the mission of solving problems, correct? Yeah, that, that's fundamentally what, uh, what software developers do, um, engineers, administrators, architects. They figure out how to solve problems. Uh, that's to, that tends to be a skill set that is consistent in uh, successful people in software. So the type of person who gets into this field might be, uh, might be good at, for example, solving puzzles. Some people, um, mm-hmm. some people may be, they may really like, um, you know, even some aspects of um, fantasy literature, you, because you need to be creative and, under, and think of different ways that things can work together. That's that's not a hard and fast rule, but there are certain you know kind of indicators that you can look at in your own personality that you might and you know that might be a fit. Um, if there was one characteristic that I would say is absolutely essential in anybody who's um, either programming or assign or designing software or programs of any kind, you have to be uh, just extremely curious. You have to be very curious. Uh, you have to be willing. You have, you know, you really mm-hmm. do need to be that kind of person who, you know, wonders. You know, what's behind that door? You know, what's on the other side of that hill? What's, you know, just what are, um, you know, just relating those things to to real life. You need to be able to um, imagine different possibilities. Um, and then you can start to experiment with those possibilities and eliminate some of the possibilities and uh, figure out the most effective way to do things. So that also goes back to puzzles and, you know, just being able to, to put different things together. And that, so that curiosity is essential. You know, they did a, a bunch of research, maybe about 10 years back on learning math. And, you know, in the U.S., we don't place very high in math a lot mm-hmm. of times. And so they were looking at us compared to the Japanese who are very good at math, quote unquote, right? And the one big differential they found was just the ability to keep, never give up, to keep sitting there with the problem. Those that really sat, they just in the culture, they tended to sit with that problem and not just throw up their hands as fast. Just, and that I think goes to your thing of you have to be curious, I think, to deal with um, 
you would get through that period of working through the problem better if you were just curious about the result, right? That's that's very true. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example where that relate where where that fit in in my life. Uh, when I was in high school, I wasn't a, a phenomenal student. You know, I I was really a, just like a C average student. And uh, I had a teacher uh, who really left a mark on me, uh, it just uh, on really on my career. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Mr. Merrill, uh, my math my math teacher. And at the time, I thought he hated me. Mm. You know, it, just just thinking as you know, just like here's what what's happening. And, and the reason I thought he hated me was because. When we were doing uh, different math problems in class, I just wasn't paying, I, I wasn't putting a lot of energy into it. I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I would just like learn enough of the concept to move on to the next thing. And then that's it. But he saw something that I didn't recognize. And he challenged me. Uh, he challenged me to the point where even though I was passing the tests, he would make me stay after school for a tu- for tutoring sessions. Hmm. And then because he knew that I, he had the sense that I could do better. And later on he had, and then when I thought that, you know, after the semester, I thought that, okay, I'm done now. Right. He's, he's like, no, you're going to stay and tutor other kids after that. Oh, and wow. he was, yeah. So I thought, why is this guy torturing me like that? And I just didn't get it at the time. Um, I get it now. I think it, uh, I used to say that he'd probably be really surprised at the career that I ended up in because <laughs> at one point I was head of technology, head of head of software engineering for a for a ten billion dollar hedge fund, wow. and that involved intense amounts of math of of math and calculus and you know just understanding a lot of different mathematical concepts i used to say that he'd be surprised where i ended up but i don't think i really don't think he would be so surprised if he found out uh so yeah he that was you know i you know, really didn't care one way or another about math. But once I once I got into um, software and learning uh, how to do different things and actually learning how to apply math mm. in different ways, it just opened a whole, it, it just opened up my interest in math. And that, so I would go to the point where I would, you know, you know, I could, mm. I could remember enough that I could brush up on enough things that I could do more advanced levels of math uh, and statistics and statistical analysis. And you're hearing a lot now about machine learning and artificial intelligence. All of that is math, nothing more. It's ama- you'd be amazed at what you can learn based purely on math. Wow. And what you can predict. There is one, one uh, client that I had where um, – I designed a system uh, that they hadn't had before. Uh, it was actually to help their software engineering team. Uh, this system could actually predict bugs before they happened. And I used statistical analysis to do that. Now, wow. uh, and I, I don't want to give the... I don't want to give the impression that in order to be successful in this field, you need to be a statistical analyst or, or anything like that. 
my point is that it's not something that I was at all interested in when I was younger. But once I learned how I can use it and make really <laughs> make really good use of it, and it could have an advantage in my career, I, I became just naturally interested and curious about it. Well, one thing, I, I've known you for six or seven years now, I think. And one thing I've noticed about you is you're always learning something. Always. You are always that, learning. That's another essential element. <laughs> it's you know, unlike a lot of other professions where you can learn the foundations and kind of update your skills a little bit as you go along. Uh, in technology, uh, you know, concepts and state what is considered state of the art rolls over about every 18 months. Wow. So there's no way that a person could say, say they learn Python, you know, my favorite language, by the way. Oh. Let's say they, <laughs> if someone learns Python and they get really good at it and, th and, that's, the, and that's all that they, that they ever want to work with. They're as great a language as I think Python is. Uh, there will come a time where Python will be no more. You know, one of the earlier languages that I learned was C. And uh, C was at in the 1980s was considered, you know, the language that everybody needs to know. Mm -hmm. Then came C++. It's like, ooh, C grew up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more mature now. <laughs> you know, you can go even further. But then a whole bunch of other languages came afterwards and now like what i can't remember the last time i looked at even looked at c code um there's still occasional uses for c plus plus because it's still just very very fast but then you know there's java there's c sharp mm -hmm. you know javascript python there's just all of these languages these high-end languages that help people to get things done faster so it makes older languages more obsolete. So that's, so that's where the curiosity comes in and the desire to just keep learning. You really have to have a, a desire to keep learning something that's going to be valuable to you. Well, I think that's going to interest a lot of people. It makes me think of something that um, a lot of people think that math and music are very close cousins. And I don't know about you, but I have met a lot of computer science people who are also musicians. I have zero musical talent. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my, uh, my, my kids, oh, both of my kids have musical talent. My, my daughter taught herself how to play acoustic guitar and can play some really complex things wow. on acoustic guitar. Uh, my son has used to be, uh, uh, you know, used to play. Uh, he played uh, acoustic and electric guitar and piano, mm -hmm. and and so uh, yes, that that definitely skipped a generation with me. I'm I'm good with the stereo, well, <laughs> and that even that's dating myself. <laughs> no, it just reminded me that we're discussing sort of what characteristics or interests you would have to. Yeah. A developer. And I realized there's a project. I'll try to link to it. I think it's called Music is Math. Uh -huh. So I just know there are a lot of people out there that they're using a program and maybe they're creating music. And yeah. if they'd never thought of computer science, if they never thought of um, software development, just to realize that actually some of the talent you have in using those systems 
is very much like the talent that you would have in in a developing software. Yeah, and you would, and it's fairly common, you know, for if someone has had a, a musical interest when they were younger, it's common to use that interest in other areas. So mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. You, know, you say, well, you know, th- some of these, you know, there are a lot of career connections that are just not so obvious. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, th- and this is one of them, right? Where uh, you might think that. You know, if someone says, oh, I don't want to go into computer, you know, computer science, you know, that's all for, you know, the the math nerds and the science types and, you know, the, you know, and, uh, you know, you need a PhD before you'll do anything uh, at all. And that is simply not the case at all. Uh, in my career, I have hired people who uh, I've hired people who didn't go to college at all. Mm-hmm. And I've and I, you know, and these people would stand out to me because they had a natural, um, uh, you know, a natural curiosity. They showed that they had talent and they had skill and ability because they were working on things themselves, you know, when mm-hmm. um you know, they'd come up with projects on their own and kind of figure it out when they were, you know, going through a book, they'd get an idea and just do it, you know? So those, you know, you know I'm interested in knowing those people mm-hmm. because the education, um, as I said earlier, the, the formal education itself, uh, does give you a lot to work with. It gives you some structure and some uh, some understanding of some advanced topics and everything. Uh, but it's not enough. It's not all there is. Um, I do not have a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and I'm doing quite well in my field. Uh, in my yeah. career, I have had people who are, I've had people with master's degrees and PhDs reporting to me mm-hmm. who I was holding accountable and people with bachelor's degrees, master's and PhDs mm-hmm. and with and non-degreed. There are, I think that more um, insightful people in this field look for people who can add to a project in a way or add to the work in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's where the diversity, in my opinion, becomes so critically important. Yeah. Um, maybe we should delve into that a little bit because we've had so many conversations about diversity. What is it? Um, and I mean, the first basic piece of that that we've discussed and, and you wrote about in Medium was just what it's like to be in your profession and say, go to a professional event and be the only person of color in the room and how that is, how you've, how you've processed that and thought about it over the years. Yeah, there are a lot of, um, I've been in a lot of situations like that, you know, where, where I've been, uh, you know, maybe at a conference and there are 200 people in the room and I'm the only black person. Or there's me and one other black person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of, I kind of made a game of it at one point. <laughs> Count the minorities in the room. <laughs> uh, there, it, and rarely would you get off of get get beyond you know five fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there my my focus when I'm in those types of situations 
is what I can what I can bring to the group and what I can get to the group. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really how I process it. If the group is of value to me, then I really don't focus so much on you know what the people look like. Uh, when, if um, or if I can be of value, if um, if the group itself isn't of much value to me, then uh, you know then then I respond accordingly. Yeah. But uh, I've ha- I've been in the same situations at work. You know, I've been I've worked on a uh, I've worked on a trading floor uh, where you know this was when you know at one time you know the technology people were in the back and the and you know the uh, traders or the business people were up front. Now they work together more. Or there came a time really started happening more in the '90s mm-hmm. where we started working closer together. So there were times where I was on on a trading floor where there were 300 people on the floor and I was the only black person who wasn't, you know, from the mail room. Wow. And uh, that, that's, uh, that, that's not to, to say anything negative about the person from the mail room. I, the, the, the distinction that I make is that um, I would, it, it would, it, I don't think that uh, companies appreciate, or they're just starting to appreciate, I'd say at the time they didn't, but right now they're starting to appreciate the value that a diverse workforce in a lot of areas mm-hmm. helps the company to perform far more effectively because those different backgrounds uh, bring different ideas. They see things differently. As I mentioned, you know, you have to be willing to see things from a different perspective. Well, it's hard to see things from a different perspective that you've ne- that that's just never been a reality for you. Mm-hmm. So that's why those types of things don't. Um, th- that's why the the uh, benefit from uh, collective thinking from a diverse group of people give you much more creative solutions. And I've just experienced it over and over and over again. So when I when I see that uh, you know maybe people hire in a certain way or um, there's there is there are fewer. Um, you know, they're, or they're all of one type of of person. I can see that as, you know, they're cheating themselves, and they don't. The person making the decision is cheating themselves, and they don't even realize it. That's such. That's a really profound point. Um, I remember meeting an accountant um, from Haiti, and she told me a story. She worked on Wall Street, and when the market crashed in uh, 2008, 2009, she said, and you know, a lot of these men, a lot of them were white men, were getting checks for like 85 cents a dollar, you know, no commission, just nothing. And um, they were like standing over her desk crying. And she said, you know, it's gonna be all right. And I'm like, yeah, because she would know because Haiti has been assailed by not only political un- unrest, but tremendous environmental stress, you know, ty- typhoons, storms have wiped out. They've dealt with every type of diver- of adversity, right? And so she was like a uniquely positioned to offer comfort, I would say. And, right. and that was very much needed and a little bit of levity, like it's going to be all right, you know? And um, I thought it was um, a very generous story to come from her as well, you know, that, that, that she could do that for them. 
That's that's very true, and that that's a great example of that that diversity of thought. Where, uh, yeah, the the crash of two thousand eight was was a, a really it was a serious and you know deeply problematic event, but it wasn't about human life. You know, things were gonna things like you said things things are you work through it. Things are gonna be okay. Uh, if everything, so, um, I, I, I can get that. And I've, I've seen similar situations where someone, you know, may, may see something as just like totally disastrous. Uh, and you know, I just didn't see it that way. Right. No, it's, um, I think think tanks now are directly tracking corporate profitability to diversity. There is a direct link of about 20% to 30% maybe increase in profits when you have a diverse team. They know this. They've been beating that drum. I think that idea is starting to spread, and uh, it's a good thing. Just the way, uh, just to make a parallel point here, is that just the way the CS degree has um, lost some of its luster at tech companies, and they're starting to look around for people with a more diverse academic background, like like where you said, people that are self-taught, people that might have a, a degree in another discipline, not at all in the computer sciences. They're starting to, they have yes. to, they need those people, but because they need those people, they're getting diversity and then they're realizing, oh, wait a minute, you know, the big challenge for them, for them is being inclusive once they bring those people in so they stay. And they're having to change the corporation in order to do that. Yeah, and uh, they've there are a, a variety of ways to accomplish that. And I've seen some companies making mistakes when doing that. For example, specifically recruiting only for a minority, and so because they need to, they want their numbers up to a certain level. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, the the way instead of you know kind of you know you know looking for the 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 uh the one person who will fit this you know if you make your environment so that it's comfortable and appealing to people of different cultures they will come you you will have no problem not only recruiting them but you'll have no problem keeping them there as i have seen uh lots of people leave companies uh the for you know because it was just so uncomfortable. Yeah, there. it's a big, it's the primary cause for women and people of color of leaving tech fields. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and when I say diversity, I absolutely mean women as well. Uh, women think inherently think differently than men do. And when you can combine those two types of thinking, you get a much more powerful solution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's like either you do you want to just, you know, slam your fist and make sure you get specifically what you want done, or do you want the most effective, profitable uh, way to run your business to be you know, just a way of life? And you see, you, I've, I've been in enough different companies over enough different times to see a distinct difference and understand the, understand that difference for our the types of companies that I want a relationship mm-hmm. with. 
Yeah, I think we've had a couple interesting discussions about managing people, right? And ways to do that that are more, well, I mean, the bottom line is they're promoting more productivity, but the fact is it's more of a people first, I would call it, approach. Because everyone is looking to be sort of listened to and validated in their work. No one wants to feel like a cog or like you said, a token. Yeah. Yeah. People do want to, they want to feel value for what they do. And there are a, a quite a, there are a lot of different ways to do that. And, uh, it, and it goes beyond money. I, I know um, I can't quote where it's from now, but I'm absolutely certain that there is a study that uh, shows that uh, people will actually take a lower salary for it to be in an environment where they feel more comfortable. Not to say that you can reduce salary. My point is that you can uh, make it more appealing. To, when you make it more appealing, then the money becomes less important. So the other side of this, I guess we can explore that for a minute here, is so I'm entering this profession, right? And I'm getting, and I think I'll be taking this up in another um, episode at some point, but a lot of the training for software engineers can be accomplished in about six months. Just the initial learning the languages, you know, learning the ba learning the basics can be um, the the classroom portion of the training can be done but then excelling on the job it's not only learning about the job and solving the problem it's getting along with other people yeah it's more um, learning the fundamentals uh, gives you a tool it gives you a set of tools and then you have to apply those to something because, uh, you know, if I, um, I'll equate it to uh, the law, for example, um, my, my son is an attorney. Uh, when he graduated from law school and he passed the bar, he realized that he's not ready to do anything yet. He just has a tool set and he's got the fundamentals. Now he needs to apply it to something. And this, we actually had a long conversation about this. So um, it is the, it, the, the same thing does apply in technology. You can know a language inside and out. Um, I've met people you know, along my career who had those types of skills where you know, there, there's nothing about you know, an, a language or an architecture or a computer system or a network. There's nothing that they don't know. But what they but what they they fail to do is to turn that into something of value to mm. other people, and that's also a critically important thing in this role. So yeah, I've I've people who've had those skill had the technical skills, but without an ability to turn it into something that's of value to others. I've also had people who have learned on their own, taken a couple of classes, did a couple of projects. And, um, but on those projects that they did on their own, they actually turned it into mm -hmm. something meaningful. And, you know, even if it's only meaningful to them, it's an accomplishment. It proves something. And, you know, I, I pay attention to those things. That's one of the 
what what the the question that I ask at for of every person that I interview is why, especially if they're well, every or every programmer I'll say that I interview is why are you a programmer? And you know, I wanted well, because what I'm looking for is that uh, that drive, that passion for what the job entails for what they do for what they can produce for people so um i had one person uh who i I actually hired this person because he told me that he was working on this project it was kind of a side project not even for a class it's while he was in college and he ran into this problem and he's just started working on it and working on it and he totally lost track of time and before he knew it, it it's like the sun was coming up, but he kind of felt good realizing that he solved this problem. He just like stayed, stayed with it persistently. The, the problem though, was that he had a final exam that day and he was in no shape for that exam. So that was, that was downside, but the, but what I, and the reason we got there is because he was, he was a new college graduate actually. And we were going over his transcript and there was one grade that he had that was just kind of odd that, that stood out from the others. And we were talking about that. And he told the story about the program and that in my, you know, by, in my mind, uh, that gave him a lot of credibility in the field, even more so than the A that he might have gotten in the yeah, class. Yeah, that passion. Um, I don't know if I told you this. My mom worked at Caltech. So growing up, that was literally yes. like my backyard. Yes, she did. I spent a lot of time over there. And uh-huh. I was always just so intrigued by the graduate students she had. She worked in physics. And um, they would disappear into the lab for like an entire weekend. You know, I'd never seen anything like that. This is before coding and everything, you know, and, um, you know, they'd come out and they were all like bedraggled and dirty and hungry and tired (laughs) and uh, happy, you know, happy. Yeah. Worked really hard on it. They had uh, cracked something often and um, it was exciting to see. Yeah, if you see when you see that kind of stuff does happen, you, when you see after a product launch, a lot of times or a major project is completed, you will see you know a lot of people who are who worked on it in a lot of different ways who are really happy because they created something you know that didn't exist before, and that, that's actually what attracted me to programming in the beginning. You know, like a writer or an artist starts with that blank the artist starts with a blank canvas or the writer with a blank piece of paper and they have to and they're creating something well in as in software you start with a blank screen and you're going to create something that didn't Mm -hmm. exist before and there are very few professions that let you do that um it is really it seems important to also deal with that blank piece of paper i remember um way back when learning Dreamweaver for the first time. It was the first time Mm -hmm. I'd been, um, had a program in in web development that was blank. The page was actually just, (laughs) it was blank. (laughs) It's just staring at you. (laughs) No container already built. I had to build the container for it. And I was like, I was scared, you know, for a moment. I, I was like, 
how do people do this? There's, um, there's a lot of uh, research now on learning, apparently, and how our brains learn. And apparently, and this is just a comfort anyone out there, don't think you're alone if this happens. But I guess when we learn something, frustration and, you know, is part of our brain working. It's a good sign, in other words. Absolutely. It, it, without frustration means mm-hmm. you didn't learn anything. And if you didn't learn anything, then of what, then, you know, how valuable was it really to you? Right. Because we're always, if, if we're in a, in, a, in a work culture where continuous learning is a high value, because technology is moving so quickly, then that frustration is something we're going to encounter. Um, oh, with, without a doubt. I've had, you know, even with, with, with 40 years of experience, um, you know, I, I don't code as much as I used to, but I do still occasionally because it's something I enjoy. And I, I've said, I, I think as long as I have functioning brain fingers and eyes, I'll be coding something at some time. Um, I still run into things that just totally stump me. Some there's still I still run into things that uh, will make me, you know, just that will just like really frustrate me. And then it becomes a battle of wills and that, you know, that problem is not going to win. You know, so um, I happen to enjoy that. Uh, it, it, um, I don't enjoy the process of going through it, you know, but um, that's when I know that I've learned something. And it's also an indication that, you know, no matter how long you've been in the field, there's always still something to learn. Right. Um, in the conversations I've had with uh, middle skill professionals so far, again and again, probably with any professional, but I'm just going to speak to the expertise needed by Um, people to be successful in almost any profession. It is that continuous learning. It is showing up and it is getting along. Mm -hmm. And not being afraid to ask for help. I would totally agree with that. Absolutely. The... At, right, asking for help, asking questions. Uh, the problems are better solved by groups of people than by individuals. Uh, there's, I've, you know, I've seen in, I've seen situations where there was one person who knew everything, and they all de- and everyone depended on that one person. And I I see that as a a huge red flag. Uh, that that's a sign of a problem environment, and it's also a sign of poor management. Is if a, if a if a manager or a leader in the organization allows that to happen, then in my opinion, they're just lazy. So unfortunately, there are there are quite a few bad managers. There are quite a few lazy managers. So just like in any profession, you, know, you may have you you may go from job to job until you find the place that you're more comfortable. Uh, but that's also the benefit of being in a profession that's in high demand in a lot of different areas. And now that, you know, the, the, the remote technology has really reached a point of maturity, you, there's really not even a limitation on where you can work. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a comment, 
and share it with your friends. For more links and information about today's episode, please visit us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Podbean pages at Careers Without Four Years. Take care.